Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by Lynda.com. Learn what you want, when you want, with access to thousands of online video courses, including a wide range of photography topics and skills. For seven days of free, unlimited, in-depth courses, visit Lynda.com slash TWIP. That's Lynda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash TWIP. This week on TWIP, a look at how photos taken with expensive gear can be recreated on the cheap. Plus, Sony debuts the new A5100 and Hasselblad's new H5D200C produces 200 megapixel files. It's Monday, August 25th, 2014, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today to discuss some of the cool things that are happening in the world of photography are Mr. Topher Martini and Mr. Doug Kay. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey. Good, thanks. It's good to have you both back on the show. Topher, it's been a while, man. You haven't been on in, like, forever. Since the last time you were on, I think... You got engaged, had a bunch of kids, or something. Like. <laughs> Life is a grand adventure, you know, yes, as we all know as photographers. But it is. We're married here in October, and uh, a lot of exciting changes on the storefront. You know, coming up here, we'll have some new creative and professional projects I'm working on. So maybe in a couple of weeks or so, I'll be able to share more details. But it's really exciting, and always great to chat with you guys. It is. It's always good. And change is always good. Well, not always, but change generally leads to growth, which is good, right? So congratulations on Absolutely. that. Thank you. And keep us keep us posted, posted on what the stuff is that you're up to. Will do. All right, Mr. Doug Kay, what have you been up to, man? Lots of lots of things I hear. What's happening in your world? Yeah, not, not as exciting as getting married, although I did that like 40-some years ago. Uh, <laughs> and it but, stuck. It stuck. Yeah, it did. Basically. It did. It's true. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I haven't seen you for at least a week. but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been teaching a lot, uh, new episodes of All About the Gear, mm -hmm. working on some new projects with you that will launch soon, and um, I've been doing really interesting with a, ma a major new off-site backup for all of my images. I decided to, uh, to de design my own server and put it at a friend's house remotely and do nice. basically make my own remote cloud, and I'm going to do the same for him instead of using one of the cloud services. Really an interesting project. Um, heading to Iceland next month with Martin Bailey, if the volcano doesn't erupt too much. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm leading a workshop in Cuba in January that's already sold out. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. How, how long did it take that workshop to sell out? Uh, actually, I had, I had mentioned it to enough people that it took a, just a few hours. <laughs> I, I just I basically had I had thirty people who wanted to go and only a dozen spaces. So it um it was pre-sold basically. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, um as you know, we're gonna be launching a workshop series on this week in photo coming up in twenty fifteen. I'm gonna have to pick your brain on how to make these things sell out in the first couple hours like that. Yeah, yeah, that, well I don't think I could do that again, but we'll find out. Hey, I need I'll, to do it, do it every single time we do a workshop, it's gotta be sold out like that. Yeah. <laughs> now, between Iceland and Cuba, honestly, which one are you looking forward to more? Well, I've been to Cuba twice, so this is my mm -hmm. third trip there. Uh, but I love it. I just love shooting there. And Iceland, I'm going more because I'm not – I don't consider myself a particularly good landscape photographer, and I'm going more for the challenge and to see the country. So wow. I, I can't answer that. Ha! <laughs> I don't know, Doug. I mean, going to Iceland, I just interviewed a bunch of guys that were there doing a uh, doing the feature film Boca. Yeah. They went to yeah. Iceland and uh, recorded that film. And from what they say, and and of course, we're talking to Rebecca Goodliffstarter, who we've had on the show before. Say that, again. Lives, say that name again? Goodliffstarter. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, and it's composed <laughs> of characters that I can't write. So... <laughs> But uh, apparently you can't aim your camera in a direction there that's not beautiful. So you're yeah. giving yourself like a pretty pretty good head start by going to Iceland for some Okay, but wait a, wait a minute. I got I to gotta carry a heavy tripod because it's windy. Wah. I had to go to REI and buy like full-length rain gear, right? Wah. Yeah. Cuba, <laughs> all I can say is cigars and rum and shorts. Oh, yeah. There you go. Bermuda oh. shorts. All right, guys, before we jump into the show, I want to thank our first sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo, and that's our good friends over at lynda.com. 
Lynda.com helps you learn and keep up to date with your software. You can pick up brand new skills. You can explore new hobbies. And all of this is using their, you can do this using their easy to follow video tutorials. Whether you want to learn how to use Photoshop or improve your photography skills or manage your photos in Lightroom, Lynda.com offers thousands of courses on a variety of topics. Like I said, you can learn software. I mean, and this can be in the creative genre. You can learn business skills, photography techniques, web design. They've got over 2,400 courses and they're adding new courses every week. Lynda.com works directly with software companies to provide timely training, often on the same day that the new software versions are released. So you pick up some new software, you head over to lynda.com and learn how to use it and get up to speed with it the same day. And they offer courses for all levels, and they're adding new courses all the time. These courses are taught by industry experts. These are folks that know what they do, they're doing, plus they're folks that have been training photography and software for years and years. So they know how to get an idea out of their head into your head. And uh, their instructors are, like I said, accomplished professionals. Many of them are at the top of their fields and they're passionate about teaching and training. Now, Linda's productions and their, their courses are high quality video productions. They shoot them in studio, you know, like there's live action that's shot in studio and high quality screen capture for the, the demonstration pieces. These aren't just, you know, any video that any old person can record. These are productions. These are high quality productions. And they're convenient. You can take the courses anytime you want from your computer, tablet, or mobile device. And then each course is structured so that you can learn from start to finish or just jump in the middle somewhere to find a quick answer to some problem that's been bugging you. And the courses are broken into bite-sized pieces. So if you got 15 minutes to spare or 15 hours, you can learn at your own pace on your own terms. And one low price of 25 bucks gives you unlimited access to the entire library. So we've worked out a deal with lynda.com so that uh, you can get a special offer to access the entire library for free, this is for TWIP listeners, for seven days. So just visit lynda.com slash TWIP to try lynda.com free for seven days. Once again, that's lynda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash TWIP to try it out for seven days. And I'll tell you, I'm using that seven-day trial right now to uh, get up to speed on Adobe Audition. So, you know, of course, I'm a member of the Adobe Creative Cloud so I have access to all of Adobe software, and we're doing some pretty interesting things on in the TWIP universe, kind of stepping things up or stepping our game up a little bit. And I found myself needing to learn how to use Adobe Audition, which is their audio editing software. Well, when I first launched it, I was like, oh, oh boy, here we go. You know, so my first step was YouTube, and I jumped around and found some tutorials on YouTube, but then I went to Linda and boom, there it is, an entire course laid out for everything I need to know about Adobe Audition and I'm getting up to speed very quickly. So once again, try them out, get access to everything they have in their library for free, over 2,400 courses, and just, uh, just head over to lynda.com slash twip and everything will just work from there. And we thank Linda for their support of This Week in Photo. All right, folks, let's, let's jump into this first story. Story number one. Um, so let me read the little blurb here. Photographer Brian Spencer recently conducted an experiment after several comments on his blog raised the question of how much do you have to spend on gear to get great shots? Now, we know it's ultimately the photographer that takes the great photo or that makes a great photo. Spencer set out to see how much of a difference spending more money on expensive gear really makes. So he equipped himself with approximately $500 worth of used gear from eBay, including a Nikon D40 and several lenses, and he used it to make several photographs, macro, long exposures, portraits, etc. Then he took the same images using almost $7,000 worth of gear, and he compared the results. Now, I know both of you guys had a chance to look at the link and look at the, uh, the, the, the two photos that he took of in each situation side by side. Topher, looking at you, I know you're, you're over at Lytro. You guys make cameras and camera technology and IP and all that good stuff over there. You, when you saw this, what did you think? Was it like, ah, whatever? 
you know, when first thing, it's ultimately the artist that makes a great photograph yes. and a great image. And, you know, the tools are great across the board. You know, even a Nikon D40, which some people would throw out as, oh, it's, you know, a decade old, or I don't even know how old it is at this point. Mm -hmm. But it's your, your tools as a photographer, knowing how to control light, knowing how to compose your subject. You know, I, I'd encourage the audience to look at the uh, A and B shots that the photographer took, especially when there was a model in the shot. Looking at how they posed the model, I think, was more of a standout than, you know, what was the bokeh pattern or what was in focus or not in focus. And so I think the, that was really the takeaway for me is the tools that are important as a photographer is knowing how to control light and balance in the scene and ultimately how to compose. So then, Topher, just continuing on with that, so what does that mean in terms of these you know, $3,000, $4,000, $5,000, $7,000 cameras, you know, from Leica and all the way down to the new, to the big Sonys and, you know, even the Micro Four Thirds cameras like on Olympus and Panasonic. Looking at these cameras versus cameras that came out several years ago, can, are you saying that people can just, you know, forego those, forego those and go get the cheaper ones and get the same results? There's always knowing your audience, you know, how you want to share your image. That if you're a, you know, medium format photographer doing fashion, this camera might not cut it for you because you need the megapixels and resolution. Ultimately, it's a lot like driving a car. That you can drive a, you know, used or older car for, and you know, be an exceptional driver. Uh, but you know, having a different type of car that more suits your needs will help you become a better driver. Same is true here. That if you have a camera that more suits your shooting style, that you know is more applicable to your output format, I think ultimately you'll get a better image. On the screen right now, we can see a, a you know wonderful night shot, long exposure. You know, these are both great compositions that the photographer did. The tools aren't really the highlight here. It's really the visual aesthetic and the eye that they had for composition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what what I would say about these cameras versus the more expensive cameras is, you know, more megapixels, of course, and larger sensor and then low light sensitivity allow you to do different things. That's that. Those are the things. Doug, I want, of course, I'm going to have you chime in, especially since you're the guy from all about the gear, you know, <laughs> and I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons why we put this this topic in the show is because both of you guys are on here and you have experience with gear. Doug, you review this stuff. When you saw this article, Knowing what you know and having handled all the gear that you've touched so far and reviewed, what does this make you think? I mean, is, is it is it is the conclusion valid that you can do amazing work with just five hundred dollars worth of gear and you don't need to be spending seven grand on a on a awesome to die for kit? Yeah, I, I think Brian Spencer did a really good thing here. Um, he pointed out a very important fact, which is you can make great photographs with inexpensive gear, and for some of my students. I really encourage them to start with less sophisticated gear that they're not going to spend all their time pushing buttons and moving dials around and things like that. Um, I mean, I love it when I can go out with, you know, one prime lens and not have to be doing gear reviews once in a while. It's, it, you know, <laughs> I come back with some pretty nice stuff. But having said that, so, so why would you spend a factor of 10 or 15 times as much for the gear? And I think Brian maybe didn't, well, he did mention these things. I should be really fair. Um, but, you know, the inexpensive gear is going to cover 90% of what most people are going to shoot. And if you look at the images that we're seeing now, the, the lighting is good. Uh, there's not a lot of motion involved and so forth. But there are three situations in particular that I could think of where, Sometimes you do have to spend more money just to get an unusual shot. One of them is high ISO, meaning if you want to shoot in low light, then you may need a more expensive camera. Uh, another is fast autofocus. If you want to shoot a rapidly moving subject, then a camera that, you know, a complete kit for $500 may not give you the shots that you want to end up with. And the final one is large prints. If you want to do anything you know much bigger than the usual 8 by 10s or so forth even even up to the uh, almost the 16 by 20 or something like that you know then you, you know you start to need something with more megapixels so if you don't need to print large autofocus quickly or shoot in the dark then i think there is not a significant difference by the way you know to see the differences in these images that brian posted i had to zoom in you know, I had to go in and start looking at pixels. I had to see, you know, where the noise was and what was sharp and so forth. So um, I think he's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So what's the takeaway from this is that, you know, we say this. I, I'm, 
as I say this, I'm answering my own question. If you're a beginner, don't spend a bucket of money on really expensive gear, right? You can start off getting your feet wet and exercising your trigger finger muscle with some with with cheaper, less expensive gear and still get some amazing results, right guys? Well, Absolutely. plus plus you you if you're just getting started, you really don't know what you want yet. You know, unless you say my goal is to shoot sports and I know I need auto fast autofocus or my goal is to print large or yeah. my goal is to shoot in the dark. You know, most people don't know that when they're getting started. Go out and get an inexpensive camera and start there. And I think, too, the lenses are really something to highlight, that in the lifetime of owning a camera system, your lens arsenal is what will pay off the most if you talk about where to spend your dollars. You know, we always get comments from people of how to be a better photographer with a given camera, and my answer is always, you know, look at a 50 millimeter prime and get a 1.8, a 1.4, and learn how to shoot at shallow depth of field, because ultimately that's one of the ways to make your images really stand out as well. So when looking at where to spend your dollars as a consumer, we put a lot of attention on the camera bodies, but it's important to highlight the lenses as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, Topher, while we have you on the hot seat here, um, the Lytro Illum, right? How does where does that fit into like a, or where does Lytro see that camera fitting into a photographer's kit? Is it is going to be the primary camera that I take with me? Is it a professional camera, amateur? Where where does it fit in? It's it's a great question. You know, it's absolutely complementary as a new creative outlet for taking a different type of picture. When you look at the images shared on the web, you know, to Doug's point earlier about resolution, that it's, you know, two megapixels at the high end for what's shared on Google Plus and Facebook. So there's a way with this new camera to make interactive depth of field and all these new types of effects. So for a working professional photographer, Lightroom Loom is complementary to their existing digital SLR or Micro Four Thirds or other camera. Mm -hmm. It's a new opportunity to explore and new types of shots as well. Uh, the camera has exceptional close focus macro capabilities. So when looking at product photography, studio photography, you know, if you think about like a lookbook for a product catalog, mm -hmm. people can actually interact with the image, and it's a really cool and you know bleeding edge technology to put out there. So now now. Topher, if I if I recall correctly, I know you and I had a conversation several years ago, and if I remember, you are a Leica shooter, right? I am. Yeah. You are like so that's the far end, and I know you know they opened a store in San Francisco a couple of days ago, right? We've been there several times. It's been oh, nice, nice. Yeah, going back. Yeah, um, we're gonna be doing some TWIP meetups there, by the way. Um, so when you when you I look at Leica, I look at them as sort of the top end scale in terms of build quality, in terms of um, expense, obviously, because their cameras are really expensive. But then you get what you pay for, and they have a loyal group of people of followers behind them that are like, you know, there's the Leica look that every you know all this mm -hmm. stuff. So contrasting that with this conversation about this entry level gear, mm -hmm. if someone sees that and they're like, you know what? I've I've read about like a I want to like a camera because X Y and Z the great photographers I know are shooting Leica I'm gonna save up and get a Leica mm -hmm. and that's gonna be my entry level camera should they do that or should they start shooting with something really cheap and work their way into the Leica? Well, I think it's understanding what's right for you. Definitely, both are valid paths as a growing photographer to to figure out the type of images you want to capture. You know, to the original poster's comment about this new type of camera and price. You know, the used photography market is probably the best place to explore. If you look at an old Leica M8, uh, you can buy those for fifteen hundred, thirteen hundred dollars used right now. When they were originally several thousand, I think uh, seven or eight thousand new. Wow. So I think you know, looking at how economy of scale works, that as newer and newer cameras come out, it doesn't make those old cameras worse. It just makes them more cost effective. So I'd really look at that as a place to get in. You know, ultimately, a lot of people who first get into Leica, you know, like myself originally, was you get into the Leica look and the CCD technology versus CMOS and all these other things. But ultimately, it's until you get the camera in your hands and look at the types of pictures you're taking. Uh, a rangefinder really works for me. And I think looking at how the Sony A7 series has come out, it's a really complementary way and shooting style. Um, and I think a lot of more, you know, both lens companies and camera companies will move in that direction. Yeah, and that's Doug. Doug, you're you're in the Sony A7 camp, right? I know you purchased one of those. Doug, what's what's the the ideal entry level kit for a photographer? They don't have one yet. They've been shooting with a mobile phone, and now they're like, okay, I want to get serious about this. I'm going to start shooting 
photography and take this more seriously? What should they go out and buy right now? Yeah, like ask me an easy question. Like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're the host of All About the Gear. This is the gear question. You know, I can't. It's funny because most of the email I get from the show is what camera should I buy? Yeah. You know, and it's usually no more complicated than that one sentence. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to, you know, p part of this is going to come up in our next story, number two story, because I think Sony's knocking it out of the park with a number of their cameras. Um, you know, for getting started, I think you can, you know, boy, you almost can't go wrong. I think some of the low-end Sonys are nice. Um, I love the Olympus and Panasonic cameras, the Fujis, uh, and even the entry-level Nikons and uh, Canons, but... Uh, I'm concerned about Nikon and Canon because I'm not sure that that's a place that someone getting into photography today wants to, that's the direction they want to go in. I'm worried about where those companies are going to take it. So yeah. I yeah. would say, you know, look at look at the mirrorless cameras in the, you know, five to $600 range. You can do quite well. Yeah, and my, my answer, I get that question all the, all the time too. My, my general answer is there's two pieces to that question. There's how much can you afford? which is going to put a barrier on your choices. And then there's what kind of things are you going to be shooting, right? Are you buying the camera to do portraits? Are you thinking you're going to be shooting sports? Are you into birds or macro? You know, all these things. The price and the, and the genre of photography that you want to pursue will inform almost down to a fine point what you should be buying. Yeah. <laughs> and, let's, and let's not forget, again, what Brian Spencer meant to do in his article, which is, you could do a lot worse than going out and buying uh, an old D40 used and one lens uh, because for the 500 and some dollars you're going to spend, that's what you'd spend to rent a couple of cameras for a week. Yep. So, yeah. you know, be, become a smarter shopper. I can remember when I, when I first had my first digital camera and I was out shooting with it and uh, it was a new Nikon and I was so excited and somebody asked me, whether it was full-frame sensor or not, and I didn't know what he was talking about. Mm. And I think, um, you know, unless you really have educated yourself, you're going to spend money and really not know what you're doing, so why not buy used and learn? Yeah. yeah. You raise a great point, too, with renting. I think that can't be, you know, undervalued at all, that a lot of places even offer you a credit towards the purchase of a camera, but there's something about holding a camera in your hands, the, the menu, the button layout, the ergonomics, everything, if you get a new camera and you don't want to pick it up for any reason, you're not going to, and it's going to become shelfware. So, yeah. uh, you know, more so than features, I think that's a huge part for a first-time camera buyer. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. All good topics. I mean, it's it's great that we can have this conversation right now because there's so many there's so many choices out there. Like, you know, the Uber high end, you know, on the Leica side, with you know, if if that's the direction that you can and want to go in, it's there for you, right? And then, as as evidenced by this article that we're we're talking about here, the low end isn't really so low, right? It's not. Low end doesn't necessarily mean you're you're shooting 640 by 480 grainy shots anymore. You can do some high art with really really $500, you know, sub $500 worth of gear. So it's a, it's a good time. All right, guys, let's move on to story number two. Uh, last week, Sony officially announced the A5100. It's their latest release, and it features almost all the same features that are in the A6000 that we reviewed on All About the Gear. Right, Doug? Didn't we review that camera? 6,000, yep. Yep. Yeah, so let me, inside, basically inside the A5100, it's got the same 24.3 megapixel sensor. It's got a fast hybrid AF system, um, a capable Bion Z processor. You'll have to tell us what that means. And it's got a max ISO of 2,500-600, or 25,600, um, and it's the same that you're going to find in the A6000. But what it's missing is an electronic viewfinder, um, and Sony has, what does it say here? To make up for it, Sony has upped the resolution of the 3-inch LCD to 921,000 dots and made it flippable to 180 degrees, and they made it a touchscreen. Doug K. Woohoo! <laughs> Those are the things that we talk about on the show all the time. The A5100, now that you bought the A6000, are you kicking yourself? No. No, not me personally. <laughs> and, and and for those, there are, we have, there are a lot of TWIP listeners who have not ever watched or, or heard a uh, all about the gear show. But let me explain this situation. First of all, Sony has really a, a hit on their hands with the Alpha 6000. It's a crop sensor camera, APS-C, 
which means it's got a slightly smaller sensor than what we call a full-frame camera. Um, it's incredibly popular. It was or is still the hottest-selling camera on the hottest-selling camera on uh, Amazon.com for a while. Oh, is it? Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, really a huge hit. It is a superb camera. Its price now is only about $650 without a lens. And it is a terrific camera because, among other things, uh, it's one of the first cameras to have really good autofocus in a mirrorless camera. Mm -hmm. uh, again, if you don't know what that is, doesn't matter, but it's a great camera. I have students, two students in the last week bought that camera, the uh, A6000, and they've already got it and they love it. Um, so it's a huge hit. The, the difference here is that Sony very smartly said, how can we capitalize on the success? Let's take the same camera, the same innards, the same picture quality. Let's take out the electronic viewfinder, then that's what you look through, mm -hmm. and instead enhance the thing on the back of the screen, the back of the camera, that's the LCD, and make it so that it tilts. Uh, you can you know, orient it in different positions. You can tilt it all the way up so that you can see it if you're looking from the front of the camera, mm -hmm. and they made it touch sensitive. So, and they've knocked $100 off the price. Mm -hmm. So it's $100 cheaper, and your choice is do you want a tiltable touchscreen or do you want an electronic look-through-it viewfinder? And that's a personal choice. I, yeah, I, I wanted to touch on that a little bit because with these new cameras, even the, my cameras, even like the GH4 that I shoot with, it has you know the electronic viewfinder and the, the screen on the back, obviously. But very rarely do I find myself looking through the viewfinder these days. You know, I like the bigger screen on the back with all my little numbers and horizon line and all that stuff, and I like to hold it out there to get the shot that way. and I Because you I, don't wear bifocals. I do not wear bifocals yet. <laughs> but, now, you also took away the hot shoe on this camera, correct? Oh, did they? Oh, I didn't realize it. Okay. I think that was one of the key things. There's a pop-up flash that goes in the place of where the hot shoe was. Um, and that was the only thing. And that's how they attach the EVF, usually, is through mm -hmm. the hot shoe. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the only other major difference between that and the A6000 that's you know important for me is if you wanted to hook up to studio strobes or anything like that, you know, this is not that camera um, yeah. versus one with the hot shoe would be. Now, what do you think, Topher? I mean, in terms of like that, the, what I was posing there, do you really need the EVF? Now, you know, you said you're a rangefinder shooter, so... You need you need to be looking through the camera, but in general, I mean, what, what do you think? Well, it's kind of the bright sunny day test. If you're out shooting in bright sun, that EVF can really help sometimes. So yeah. I think it, until you see that screen out there, that would be the the main litmus test. But you know, Sony's been hitting them out of the park recently with the A7 series. Now with this series, mm -hmm. you know, there are some you know small details along the way. You're like, oh, why'd they do that? But this one, I think, really, it's a new type of market to go after. It's a much more economical camera, and I think they'll do. Really Really well with it. Um, you know, a lot of people don't use the EVF, or they you know put it away and never you know buy it once type thing. So, I think this will be a really cool option for people who are looking to get into that first camera. Kind of your question from earlier. Yeah. Now, Doug, who's this, who's this camera for? You know, I always ask that on all of the gear. Who is this camera for? Uh, this is a terrific entry level camera, but it I have the A6000, which again is the same image quality. It is a great take-it-everywhere camera for a serious photographer. Don't underestimate it. So uh, if you don't need the electronic viewfinder, if you don't need the hot shoe, um, wow, it's hard to beat. Yeah. And what's, do you you guys know what the price of this is? I didn't see that. Anymore. 550 550 bucks. 550 with no lens. Okay. And, and personally, I would not recommend getting the kit lens. I'm not fond of it. Uh, I'd step up the lens a bit because it's it's one of these – power zooms, meaning you don't get to directly control the thing. You have to sort of a fly-by-wire zoom, and it's not, not it's not my favorite anyway. Gotcha, gotcha. Doug, do you know if there's any like battery life difference between the 6000 and this one? I don't. I don't have my hands on it yet, but the one thing I know about all the Sony uh, Alpha series is you got to have lots of batteries. <laughs> I, have, I think I have seven of them. Wow, wow. But that's okay. That's what pockets are for. <laughs> <laughs> and the batteries are relatively tiny too, right? Yeah, yeah, they're not bad. All right, guys. Let's swing it into the other direction, right? So this is that at 500 bucks in change. That's an entry-level camera, I would say. On the other end is Hasselblad with their new H5D 200C camera, which produces 200 megapixel files. So 
and, uh, you know, here's here's the blurb that, uh, that that we have in the notes here. It says, if there's still a megapixel war going on, Hasselblad just dropped the equivalent of a bomb um, in the war zone in the form of the H5D200C. The new camera, announced ironically through Instagram, uses its multi-shot technology to combine six images into a single frame with 200 megapixels of resolution. The resulting file is a 600 megabit 8-bit TIFF file. No pricing was announced yet, but considering the HD five, the H five D fifty C retails for around twenty eight grand, we can probably expect the H five D two hundred C to come in around there or slightly higher. So, Topher. <laughs> so this one's actually really interesting. That. Yeah. They actually have an H5D 200 multi-shot currently, mm-hmm. but it's using the old CCD imager. Uh, they recently released the 50C, which is the first CMOS-based imager at Hasselblad. Now, this camera, while you kind of see the 200 out there and think, oh my gosh, the world's biggest imager, behind the scenes, it's actually a 50-megapixel CMOS imager. How they get your 200-megapixel shot is you take six images, very similar to an HDR bracket, yeah. and then the camera combines them into that one image. So this is a very you know, purpose-built device that if you're shooting still life, product photography, things where there's no movement whatsoever, you know, that's the camera for you uh, that would get you 200 megapixels. But at a single shot, it's still 50 megapixels, and I think that's the important thing to call out there. And, uh, you know, the pricing on this thing, I'm sure, is going to be north of $40,000, but uh, so definitely far out of the reach of the mere mortal. But, uh, you know, for some people, I think the, the move from CCD to CMOS technology for medium format is really exciting. And uh, We'll dive into that a little bit, Topher. So having that much data in a, in a single image, wh- what is it, I mean, you know, aside from the obvious and being able to zoom in, and and pick out molecules and DNA helixes <laughs> within there. Like, what what can we use that for? A lot of it's retouching. That you know, like Doug was talking about earlier, if you know, scaling up. If you're doing fashion, if you're doing billboard photography, if you're doing high-end fashion for magazine, you know, you really need that number of megapixels to do the photo finishing. Uh, product photography, the same way. That if you don't know what your output destination format is, having all those megapixels for editing is what really helps. Yeah. Um, now, in between that process, it's it's you know an insane camera, and odds are the market for this is incredibly small uh, to begin with, and a lot of it is kind of the feature by feature. the The jump from CCD to CMOS, this new sensor technology, you know, we've had this in SLR and mirrorless cameras for a long time. The main benefit is high ISO sensitivity. That in a CCD imager, you're limited typically to kind of ISO 800, and even there, it's you know scary if you have to go that high. So the ability for this to shoot in natural light is really a main benefit for still life photographers. That you don't have to worry about strobes and you know the composition within your scene as much. Um, so I, th- I think that that part's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, Doug K, looking at this $2,800, and like Topher was saying, the this new one or the H5D 50C is around $2,800, $20,000. Sorry, $20,000. Watch that. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> one one decimal point. That doesn't mean anything. Um, and this new one might be around forty-eight or forty thousand. We're 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 guessing here. You know, the, the question that always pops up in my mind is like, you know, I thought I thought the Leicas were expensive, right? And they're high-end and expensive. Looking at this guy, at that much, I always do the math. Is 600 megapixels or a 600 megabyte 8-bit TIFF file really worth what some people pay for homes in the United States here? Yeah, and, and the important thing, of course, is that Hasselblad needs to send me one to play with. Yes, that's, and, that's yeah, but you can't keep it. Sorry. Yeah, because, I mean, how can we do, a, do it justice without actually running it through some tests? Yes. Um, there are a couple of things I want to say about this camera uh, that are interesting. One is let's not get too carried away with medium format. Um, you know, these cameras are very large, and you might think that these sensors are really, really large. But the sensors are are only, in total area, are only about oh, two-thirds, again, as large as uh, a full-frame DSLR or mirrorless. Mm-hmm. And in the linear dimension, in terms of how long or high the sensors are, they're much less than that. They're about, they're, they're about one and a quarter times as large. So... These are not. This is not as big a difference when we talk about medium format as like going to two and a quarter film. Yeah, that's an important thing. Um, 
The other thing about this that's so interesting, though, is how they get all those megapixels. If you look at a most cameras sensor, it's called a Bayer pattern. So for every four pixels, two of them are green, one is red, one is blue. And when you go to stitch them back together, that means that you have to do what's called demosaicing. And you have to figure out or guess what should be in each of those four positions because you only have the green or the red or the blue for each position. And then you have to guess based upon the adjacent pixels what all the other values should be. That limits the resolution. It means you're going to get a little bit of color fuzziness and so forth. Well, what these guys do is wacko. They basically take their sensor and they use a little piezo piezoelectric component to jiggle the sensor. Well, that's sort of crude. They move the sensor by up to one half pixel width and they move it from side to side. They move it up and down to take these different exposures and then they combine them so that every pixel has red, every pixel has green, every pixel has blue. And so that's how they're getting what is what they call this uh, 200 megapixel image out of 50. Yeah, it's it's a it's a wild technology, and again, how are you going to see the difference? Only if you make large prints. Only if you really get in there and look at the pixels. But you know, wow, what a what a wild camera. I would love to just take one of those cameras out for. I don't know, a day just to play around with it. You know, I don't I don't see me taking out a second mortgage or whatever to buy one, <laughs> just to shoot with it, just to bring a file in from that and just zoom into it. Because that's that's the test, right? We all we, we all do that. We get a new camera, we take a picture, and we zoom in to see how far we can go before it falls apart. You could probably keep going all day into this image into another dimension before it falls apart. Well, remember, oh, remember it's, in terms of actual pixels, you know, this the pixel density on this is less than a Nikon D810 or a Sony A7R. It's actually lower density, which is good. You know, you got bigger pixels; they collect yeah. more light. But it's, um, I think, what's intriguing to me is this sensor jiggling thing, as I call it. Yeah, that really, is really interesting. And the current uh, H5D 50C does the multi-shot as well, but only for the color accuracy, like Doug's talking about. The main addition here for the 200 uh, MS is that it does even six frames, and that's how they do this multi-layering to get 200 megapixels. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that they offer a portion of this feature in the current camera as well. Yeah. Yep. Now, now, Topher, do you see yourself, like wanting to play with this camera or is it just a curious little thing that you read about? You know, for I think most people who are actually going to use this camera, it would be a rental that they're a yeah. commercial photographer and they're going to add it into the invoice for a client. And, you know, people who actually own these, I think, will be rental companies for the most part. Uh, but, you know, to play with one, absolutely. I'd love to do some product photography and, and see how this goes. But yep. especially with the increased ISO sensitivity that, uh, you know, typically these are shot in studio environments with high-end strobes that to do some natural light photography I think would be really cool at, at 200 megapixels. Yeah, I know Peter Hurley, um, who I've had on the show before, uh, is a headshot photographer based in New York City. And if I, if I recall, he used to shoot Hasselblad. I don't know if he still does, um, but I'm going to ask him next time I see him what he thinks about this and if this would find its way into his studio. Because I can, can you imagine a headshot with one of these? Well, it's I mean, not you know, like a hundred years ago, you know, had had the, the neck collar for people to stay still because you had a 30 second exposure. Right. In this case, it could be six exposures at, you know, uh, probably 20 seconds to take all of them or however long it takes. But yeah. uh, I think that's the hardest part is that this is really a still life camera, not for moving subjects. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different world. Like I said, I'm, I'm going to get someone on the show that's a medium format expert because that, that world is you know, I've shot medium format, but only on film. I used to shoot it almost exclusively, um, but it was film with my RB645 back in the day. And, you know, I haven't touched one since then. So I'm, I'm anxious to, I want to get a, get Twip plugged into where medium format is today. And if it's a viable format for, you know, today's generalist photographer, or even if you're, you know, a, a model photographer, should you be looking at medium format as, as an option, or is it going in the other direction with cheaper and smaller and mirrorless, and that's where you should be looking. So. Well, it's funny you should mention that. I mean, with Photokina right around the corner, a lot of people have been speculating about what may or may not be announced, and I think this was maybe Hasselblad's way of kind of doing a pre-announcement, mm -hmm. but Pentax came out with their recent medium format camera, which I think is 
monumental in bringing the ability of medium format photography to a better price point. Uh, it's also a CMOS imager, I think a very similar one to this uh, 50 megapixel one in the Hasselblad, uh, but it's I think $8,000 or less, somewhere in that price point. Typically you think of an investment of fifteen to twenty thousand dollars for a basic medium format kit. So I you know really applaud Pentax for lowering the price point. See, Topher, we're clearly in different in different brackets <laughs> because my bracket is one decimal point to the left from where yours is. Well, you know, so fifteen hundred all... to two grand is kind of my sweet spot. You're like fifteen thousand to two <laughs> Client-side invoicing, Frederick. It's all pastor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, uh, it's crazy. One day, one day. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys, let's let's continue with the show. Um, I want to remind the folks to check out our latest episode, Doug K, of All About the Gear. On the latest one, Doug and I talked about the new Panasonic FZ1000. Doug, what was your? Uh, do you remember that episode? And what was your findings on that camera? Yeah, that that was a whole week ago, Frederick. That I we know, recorded that. No. Time I, I thought it was a really nice camera. It's uh, you know got a 16 to 1 zoom, non-interchangeable, and I was very impressed with it. Nice camera. Yeah, it is go, a nice. Go, go go watch that one. I think people will like Where that. Where should too. they go to see that episode, Doug? They can go to thisweekinphoto.com, and they will find it right there along with another 25 or so episodes of All About the Gear and more coming every two weeks. Yep, that's right. Uh, or you can just go straight to thisweekinphoto.com slash gear, oh, and that'll, that'll drop you right into all the gloriousness that is Doug K. <laughs> so, so convenient. So convenient. How easy. All right, guys, it's time for some listener Q&A. This is where we answer a question that has been on the top of one of our listeners' minds. This question for this week is basically, why do sensors in our cameras all have the same aspect ratios? 4, 3, 3, 2, etc. Doug, why don't you start with this one? I know you, you, you probably have it on the top of your head what this is. Why? Why can't we have whatever we want? Why do we have to have those crazy ratios? Because that's what they are. Just get used to it. <laughs> like Henry Ford said, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. I mean, you know, what what I does does this listener want to be able to custom order his aspect ratio? Does you know, does he want seven by two? I don't know. Uh they've got to pick something, let's face it. Yeah. And um uh you know, three to two pretty much comes from the um the thirty five millimeter days. Uh, four thirds comes micro four thirds comes from the four thirds range. Of course, there's square from two and a quarter two and a quarter. Um, it's an odd thing, by the way, if you do print because he talks about an eight by ten. Um, you know, nobody makes a sensor that's the uh, four to five ratio that I know of, and yet eight by ten is still a very common frame size yeah. in paper. You no, know, not so much in paper, but in, yeah, in paper too, because you get eight and a half by eleven. So, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, even in uh, video and cinema, you know, we've had everything from 4.3 up to, you know, 185 to 1, uh, 235 to 1 for Panavision CinemaScope uh, in the world of video and film. So there's always new stuff coming out, uh, 16 by 9 because of uh, television. I can't really answer the question except that's what's out there. I don't know why it is. Yeah. yeah. Topher, you have any insight? Yeah, when you think about it, once again, it's lens plus sensor. All lenses project a, a circle, and the size of that circle, 35 millimeter or otherwise, is basically the area of light that an image sensor can capture. Now, how you actually put the aspect ratio is totally up to the, each individual camera company. Uh, like Doug was saying, the standard aspect ratios have just been around for forever, and people know how to crop and do other things to get the ratio they want. You know, in the modern age, now that we're basically all, you know, silicon-based for designing these imagers, uh, those wafers actually come out on very large circles as well. So you don't want to waste material. That if you wanted to make a one-by-one -one sensor, you could. But then when you think about both the material on that wafer or the area in that image circle of light, you're wasting a lot of the light around it. So it's kind of creatively how you fit a rectangle or a square inside a circle. Um, the infamous, you know, peg in a circle kind of thing, but yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's no reason, I mean anybody can make any type, you can make a triangular image sensor, you can do all kinds of crazy things, but uh, ultimately some form of a rectangular sensor is best yeah. suited. Like Doug says, hey that's the way it is, deal with it, right? <laughs> but I, I understand the question though, and, and you're right Tofer, I mean this is, this is just hardware and software, right? So we can, 
we can manufacturers could theoretically do whatever they wanted to do. Um, but I think well, I have to do a little bit, a little bit more research on the here on this. But I think the reason why we're here is you know television aspect ratios for one guided the capture size, and then the other thing was just plain old prints, right? So why are the a deeper question would be why do we have these set print sizes, and the set print sizes are get dictated by frame sizes, right? So yeah. we have these set frame sizes which dictate what the print sizes will, will be, which dictate what the sensor aspect ratios will be, and on and on and on. Like Doug said, well now we have 16 by 9 because some televisions can display 16 by 9, and as that changes, we'll see different aspect ratios there. So. I mean, the, the fact is that, you know, the, the camera manufacturers have to settle on something. They can make different cameras with different aspect ratios, but nobody's going to make a camera that, uh, well, except for, I guess, digital backs, they could make a, a change. But the fact is they've got to pick something, and right. they're going to pick what they think most of the customers are going to want to buy. It's pretty much that simple. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Thanks, guys. I think that we answered, hopefully we kind of answered that question. <laughs> there is no right answer to that question, so we did the best we could. All right, let's move on to the picks of the week. This is the segment where you guys get to uh, pick something to recommend to the This Week in Photo listening and viewing audience, as long as it's somehow related to photography. Doug K., what is your pick of the week? Okay, so... This is my pick of the week. I actually brought it here. For those who are watching the video, they can see this thing. All right? Oh, dear God. What is that? Yeah, I know. That's what I was going to say. This is called, this is actually the name. This is the Quirky Pivot 6 Outlet Power Strip. And I've always wanted to be able to find something that would take all these little chargers that have oh, built in. Oh, that is plugs, killer. Right? I like that. And so this thing has six outlets. But you can rotate the thing into any shape you want. And so none of these things bump into one another. You can actually put six oh. power, power bricks into it or six battery chargers, whatever you want. You can actually fit six of them. It only costs, let me see here, $22.64 on Amazon. It doesn't have all sorts of fancy stuff on it. It's just a simple power strip. It's, it's very well made, very heavy duty. But I love the fact that I can put all my chargers and power bricks into it. It's a it's a great little unit. I just ordered it. Thank you, Doug. <laughs> Thank you. I, got, I was looking for something just like that because I have that same issue of. Well, and I've got you know I've got these things that have you know, um, uh, you know uh, what do they call UPSs in them, and they you know the outlets aren't spaced far enough apart, or they are, and then they're huge and massive, and they've got uh, you don't need that. You just need a power strip with enough space and. Because this thing twists and turns, you can fit them in any way you want. Yeah, spoken like a true Sony owner that needs a bunch of outlets to charge his <laughs> <Yeah>. batteries. <laughs> all seven of them. These are, these, these are all Sony chargers in here. I want you to know that. Okay. Yeah, look at you. You're you're set for a day of shooting now. <laughs> yeah. And there are more. I just I just took some out so I could hold it. Uh, Sony needs to work on that battery technology, man. Um, all right, cool, Doug. That's a perfect tip. I, I appreciate that. Much, much, cheap, much, much cheaper than some of mine. Yeah, I know. Yeah, 24, $22.64 for that on Amazon? Yeah. yeah. Love it. Love it. Topher Martini, what's your pick? So a long time ago, uh, Trey Ratcliffe gave a book recommendation called The Alchemist by Paulo mm -hmm. Coelho. And, you know, I kind of never read the book for a long time and always meant to and recently took some time off to actually read it. And, mm -hmm. oh, my God, if you're into photography, if you want to get started in a grand adventure – read this book. I can't emphasize it enough and really wish I had done it a couple years back that this is one of those things that will connect the dots for you. And uh, we talked about starting your journey with getting a new camera. Yeah. And I think this is a really good inspiring tale of where to take it. Um, so it's not directly related to photography in that yeah. sense, but I think people would enjoy it. And it's on. It's available on Audible, right? It is. It's on Audible. Uh, it's actually narrated by Jeremy Irons, which is a phenomenal way, way to get through yeah. the book. And uh, you know, whether you buy the paperback book or the Audible, I, I highly recommend the Audible. That's really cool. All right, another thing I'm going to get right after this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. I wonder. If, I wonder if it'd be a good book to take on a honeymoon. It, and reread it again and again. You know? <laughs> yeah. So you, you better be doing other things in your honeymoon besides <laughs> laying up with a book. Come on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, a fun yeah. time. But yeah. yes, yes. 
All right, perfect. Two great tips and picks. Thank you, guys. I, I appreciate that. Um, my pick is from my buddy Scott Kelby, who is coming to sort of the West Coast in a couple of weeks. Well, actually, what, next week? Yeah, next week, September 3rd through 5th, he will be in Las Vegas, Nevada, for the Photoshop World Conference that they put on. So if you're in that neck of the woods or in this hemisphere, I would definitely check it out. That's in seven days. They've got a countdown on the website. Uh, it's in seven days and 22 hours as I record this. So definitely go and check that out. It's Photoshop World Conference and Expo. Um, now, I'm not going because we're relaunching This Week in Photo, as Doug knows, right? So we're about to relaunch the site and do all sorts of craziness here. By the time you listen to this, hopefully, um, well, actually, no, it won't be out by then. But it'll be out shortly after you listen to this episode. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But if I could go, I would definitely be there. It's going to be an amazing show. And they always put on, their keynote is always insane. They always do something crazy, themed, Star Trek or something. And then after it is just, it's just a love fest of pixels going on over there in Las Vegas, Las Vegas for a couple of days. So definitely check it out. They've got pricing and all that stuff and a video that walks you through everything. Everything's on the site. They've done Photoshop World several times, so they've got it nailed on how to, how to run a conference. So definitely check them out. All right. Guys, that's it. That show went so fast. We're at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. How'd that happen? I know. Yeah. Good times with good friends. There you go. Time flies. I want to thank our good friends at lynda.com for making this episode possible. And uh, Doug K., where would you like people to go to keep up with you and your antics? They can find me at dougk.com. Uh, and from there, they can get to me on Twitter or Google+. I spend a lot of time on Google+. And, of course, watch me on watch me and Frederick on All About the Gear. Uh, the next camera up. Drum roll is, in fact, the um, Lytro Illum. Which oh. Is, uh, thank, thanks to our good friends at borrowlenses.com. I have one starting uh, a week from now, Tuesday, next Tuesday, and uh, that's going to be the next one we show. Oh, man. Topher, we should have you on when we do that one. Huh? Yeah. Always happy to help. <laughs> interesting. Cool. That's going to be, yeah, that'll, that'll be an interesting show. I can't wait to see that one. All right. And Topher, what about you? Where, where should people go to check up on you and see those wedding photos? <laughs> so some of those <laughs> might be private, but uh, <laughs> TopherMartini.com is the best way to connect and has links to all my social media. And, uh, you know, definitely this week in photos, another great destination to learn all about the world of photography. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for that. Cool. It's a good time. Good time. Always good talking to you both. You guys are, you know, got bucket loads of smarts that uh, that help me feel like I'm in good company every time I talk to you. So thank you for coming on. And thank listeners, you. listeners, be sure to check out our website over at thisweekinphoto.com, which will look a little bit different in a couple of weeks. So make sure you uh, check back often over at that domain. And if you want to touch base with me directly, you can find me at my website at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.